0: All right. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to a, another amazing episode of Cyber Warrior Princess. Uh, we thought we would kick off this particular episode. And, uh, uh, and Vic, could you kick us off, please? Let our listeners know what you've been up to in your visit to the great land of U.S. of A. and, and the great state of California.
1: Oh, I've had a rather exciting time. I have um, spent a couple of weeks at Stanford University. Yes, that's Stanford, the one <laughs> Trains all of the people that become amazing tech CEOs and entrepreneurs and have changed the world with their technology. Um, I got to attend the Human Centered Artificial Intelligence Conference, or the Hi Conference, which was absolutely amazing. I mean, I, wait
0: a minute, do they yes. actually call it the Hi Conference? The high conference H A I. It's a part legal in California. That seems like a dubious name.
1: No, not, uh, not as in no, not that high, and not that high, high. <laughs> it's for- no, um- it was just incredible—the the, the level of discussion that people were having about like geopolitics and AI, ethics and AI, safety and AI. You know, we had all the kind of the trolley problem. You know, which person do you kill with a with a, a an autonomous vehicle? And um, but there was a, a, an amazing woman, um, and I, I apologize if I mispronounce her name, Joy Boalamwini. Um, of MIT Media Labs, and she is the woman who set up the Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, do you remember there was um, a researcher, um, a woman of color, who found that facial recognition didn't yes, recognize her? Yes, face yes. When she Put a white mask yes, on. Yes. This is Joy. Joy is is absolutely incredible. If you have not checked her out, check her oh, out. Um, because okay, she-
0: that's I did not know that. No, how do you
1: spell her last name? uh b u o l a m w i n i
0: okay all right i need to look that up that's fantastic
1: and she's a poet as well and she's just she's massively engaging and she's going to change the world too i mean it was just talk about i know we overuse the word inspiring i was energized by her her talk it was all
0: sorts of badass that's um awesome. and- that's how a talk should be that's how a good talk should be you should leave feeling <laughs> inspired. yeah
1: you can you feel stunned by somebody's presence. Yeah. That was that was so cool. And she's oh, she's like thirty years old. I hate her. <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely incredible. Um, and I was yeah, I was able to do that because I was spending a couple of weeks with the Stanford Internet Observatory. Um, and I got to spend a bit of time with my former colleague from Facebook, Alex Stamos, who was um chief security officer. Um, and he very kindly agreed to speak to us. So we covered a number of different subjects. Um, but I will let him uh, tell you, Beck, about what the Stanford Internet Observatory that's does. So,
0: that's so exciting. I'm, I can't wait. Let's do it. Mm.
1: So, Alex, I'm here in California, and it's been a pretty exciting week or, or couple of weeks. And I've had the opportunity to spend a bit of time. Uh, with your folks at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what the I.O. does?
2: Yeah, thank you for, for having me on the podcast and it's been great to have you here. Uh, thank you very much for speaking to my class here, the trust and safety class. It's been a fantastic experience for those students to, to learn from you. Uh, the Stanford Internet Observatory is a multidisciplinary program uh, that's run out of the Freeman Spogli Institute for international relations at Stanford. Uh, And while we are under the international relations uh, research department, we are uh, intentionally a program that pulls together folks from the computer science realm, from the law school, from the social and political sciences. And our goal is to study the misuse of the internet to cause harm, come up with technical and policy responses to that. Uh, And so that, uh, you know, one of our theses here is that there's, there's no area of academic research that's not gonna be impacted by the internet, but the ability for a lot of political science, social science researchers to keep abreast of technological change is actually pretty limited. Um, There's a lot of great work that happens, but the activation energy for that work is really high. If you're a social scientist and you wanna understand how Twitter or Facebook or TikTok uh, or WhatsApp are impacting the political situation in a country, your first job is you have to find a PhD student who can write Python. You have to either come up with an API contract or come up with some way to gather data. You have to do a bunch of data analytics, perhaps uh, build some systems in the cloud or, or, or borrow some systems from the university. You know, there's, there's just a lot of work you've got to do before you could start doing your actual job of, of studying uh, the interesting political science or social science question. And so part of our goal is to build the capability to make that easy. Um, the term observatory is not an accident. We borrowed it from astronomy. If you're an astronomer here at Stanford, you don't go raise $5 billion and then launch your own space telescope. You go borrow time on the Hubble, you go rent time on the Arecibo or the Very Large Array or a variety of observatories around the world. I think we need to be the same place with social science research online is we need to have um, a handful of groups who are building the infrastructure and then are doing support for the scientists who are then answering their own research questions.
1: And I think that speaks to the speed, doesn't it, of the, the pace at which cybersecurity evolves and there's yeah. always something new to be responding to, a new fire to put out. And, and you and I, we both had experience working down the road at, at Facebook of how quickly threats can emerge and become public. And we've just seen in the last week or so Twitter banning political ads and the amount of pressure that um, Zuckerberg's come under in Congress um, it, it may well be a coincidence that you guys published a, a white paper last week about influence operations. Yeah. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about that as well?
2: Yeah. No, you're totally right. The the pace of what is happening online versus the pace of academic study are incredibly mismatched, and and that is one of the things we're trying to do here. Um, is that we we do have our own social science researchers in-house, and our goal is to provide them with the technical capability to study these issues, uh, and then a platform by which they could publish their results in an impactful way quickly, without then uh, foreclosing on the ability for them to do, you know, good long-term peer-reviewed research on the normal publication schedule, which, you know, could take a year or two uh, to get into a peer-reviewed journal. Um, And so, yeah, a great example of that is the work that we first released last week uh, which was a paper led by Shelby Grossman. Uh, Shelby is a Harvard PhD. She studied uh, political science uh, in African democracies, uh, and she joined us not having much of a technical background. Although you know she's done some, she's done a bunch of quantitative social science, mm-hmm. but she hasn't done a, had not done a lot of work uh, on internet impacts. Um, and uh, we uh, a number of people working with her uh, and giving her support. Uh, resulted in her finding a uh, network of activity across Africa that we assess to be related to entities that work for Vegni Prigozhin, who is one of Putin's oligarchs who have been involved in this activity in the past. Um, Prigozhin is most famous for supporting the Internet Research Agency, the people who were involved in the U.S. 2016 election. He has a number of business interests, including uh, mining interests, um, and it seems that the uh, This network of disinformation from a number of African countries, including Libya, Sudan, Madagascar, Central African Republic, uh, was uh, disinformation activities in support of his economic interests in Africa, Um, and so it's kind of a fascinating example of a number of things of how these techniques that were you know first used in uh, effectively state-to-state warfare. between Russia and Ukraine, between Russia and the United States, uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. You know, these are the places where we've seen lots of information warfare, that those techniques are now being used for economic mercantilism uh, in places like Africa uh, and uh, are now evolving to include a variety of different uh, techniques such as hiring people in country, the support of pseudo journalistic organizations like local newspapers and local radio stations. Um, and so, anyway, we, we put that report out, and it's a great example of exactly the kind of work that we want to both do internally to the Internet Observatory, but also what we want to support other researchers and be able to do in the future.
1: Completely coincidentally, or, or, or perhaps not, because this has been bubbling under the surface in the US uh, for quite a few months now. And while we were out there, Twitter actually uh, announced that they were banning political ads. And so I ended up um, talking to the BBC about that. And it was quite amusing because I was able to say, well, I'm here in Silicon Valley at the moment. And this is really big news, you know. And, and so when I um, signed off on
0: the radio, <laughs> the radio presenter said, and that's Dr. Victoria Baines oh, in Silicon Valley. Oh, look at you. You're like, status points achieved. <laughs> It was, well, it was hilarious. I actually, I thought
1: this is the closest I'm ever going to get to being Kermit the Frog doing a Muppet
0: News fight. Is it wrong that I thought of Barbara Walters? You probably don't even know who Barbara Walters is. Oh, you've told me about her before. I've I've retained that information. My American peeps love the Baba Wawa stories. Just,
1: and, and when I mention Kermit the Frog doing a Muppet newsflash, I'm not being disparaging. I, I you know, the four year old me wanted to be.
0: Kermit, Kermit handled Muppet some hot news so, items, thank you very much. And he handled them with finesse <laughs> and panache. Yes. And kindness. Yes. And kindness. <laughs> and kindness. Very important. Sesame Street kindness. Uh, yeah, um, I, j- so, sorry, just quickly before we move away from it. So the whole Twitter thing was interesting to me because um, uh, what's the CEO chap, um, Dorsey, uh, Jack Dorsey? Yeah, because yeah. he sent the tweet out, right? I were banning political ads, and that sort of lit up the Twitter sphere for a while, and and then they basically said, yeah, 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 okay, we're going to come out with a statement, and it's going to you know, it's going to tell you exactly what it's going to be, and then they sort of peeled it back a bit, didn't they? So they. They said, you know, yeah, we're going to ban some of these things, but not these other things. And I mean, how realistic do you think that is, that they're actually going to be able to police all of this as it goes forward?
1: So it's funny you should mention that, Beck, because that's exactly what Alex and I went on to discuss. So, as you know, as much as I'm being slightly frivolous with my Kermit the Frog, you know, there are very serious people like Alex Stamos and, and the Internet Observatory that are, you know, really looking into the impacts of this and how you how you do actually operationalize and you know i thought it was really timely that they had this influence operations paper out at, at, at the same time because what that showed is that you know you there are always ways to get around bans of you know um certain types of political content and banning advertising it means nothing if there are other ways to get your political point across and and have political influence um but this is what alex had to say about it
2: as, as our research showed advertising was a minor part of uh that uh, russian activity in africa uh it was for the most part the creation of organic audiences mm-hmm. uh by the you know same kind of model the internet research agency used of creating content that has nothing to do with the political uh, issues at hand building audiences and then slowly changing these channels to you know between uh, for example there was a, a in one of these countries a rapper uh who was posting youtube videos who you know was mostly about kind of lifestyle stuff but then you know then got political in a, in a strange way Um, You know, that kind of behavior uh, does not require advertising. And the Twitter decision's interesting. I mean, I think there is a a real challenge of figuring out how do we want to regulate political ads in developed democracies. Um, There is a long history of these democracies being careful about giving the capability to regulate ads to private entities. So here in the United States, uh, there is still a law in the books that requires local television stations to carry political ads by candidates that hit a certain threshold without any kind of editorial decision because Congress did not want television, television station owners to be able to censor one candidate or the other. Now, obviously, the Internet's very different than television is regulated in a very different way. But I think we have to recognize that there's a history here of, of saying, you know, we wanna be careful about what corporations do. You know, Twitter has effectively punted on the whole issue through their decision. I actually think in the long run, they've put themselves in a harder situation um, than a number of other solutions would have done because by banning all issue ads, they will now have to ban a huge number of ads that touch upon issues, or they're gonna to have to make very hard decisions that are gonna seem politically motivated. So for example, Nike here in the United States ran a bunch of ads supporting Colin Kaepernick in his fight against the NFL, those were seen as very political. Um, I think it's under the current standards I have seen from Twitter, I think they would have to decide to ban those ads. And the people who are supporting Twitter's actions would think that that's totally inappropriate. Um, the other thing that we got to remember is that, uh, you know, the target of a lot of this ire is Donald Trump, right? Like, we, you can't understand any of the conversation about this without understanding that a lot of people in America blame Facebook and Twitter for Donald Trump. And so whether that's correct or not, you have to recognize that Trump has built his audience. And so if somebody wants to challenge Trump, one of the ways they can build their own audience in the 2020 campaign is going to be through online advertising. So banning this technique once it's been effectively used by the person you're trying to target to build their organic audience might actually help solidify their position Right, And I think that's one of the things that people aren't thinking carefully about is the fact that the Democratic challenger to Donald Trump is going to be using online advertising as a way to you know, fill that gap with his tens of millions of Twitter and Facebook followers, as well as all of the hyper right-wing media that also has large followings. Um, and so what I would rather see is I'd rather see I I, I disagree with Facebook's decision to not fact-check at all. I think they can have a standard where if you have a statement of fact especially one that's about an opponent that if it's plainly wrong that they can fact check it um and so if there's a trump ad that says you know joe biden has been accused of child molestation right that is a factual statement that is easily checked is not true facebook could ban that ad but if donald trump says the american economy has never been better that is the kind of thing that they will let go it's not really true but it's a kind of what we call in America puffery. It is the kind of, you know, marketing uh, argument that people might make uh, in a number of a variety of contexts, and that needs to be kind of decided in the political sphere. I would
1: use the term rhetoric. You rhetoric, know I would, yes.
2: right? <laughs> so, right. Um, well, I, I think, and I actually was talking about this, and a, a number of lawyers pointed out that actually there's a, a long history in, in the United States of being able to distinguish between statements of fact made in a misleading way versus corporate puffery. We have the best product, is puffery. Our product cures cancer is a factual statement, right? right. And so... Um, I think there is like some precedent here that could be applied by Facebook and Twitter. The other thing I'd like to see Facebook and Twitter do would be just to restrict the ability to micro-target. I think that would take care of a lot of the issues here, is if a candidate, any candidate, had to run an ad against tens of thousands of people instead of dozens or hundreds.
1: And that takes us back to the the old topic that we get brought back to again and again, which is about... If you don't like the business model, that's a different discussion yes. about, you know, micro-targeting, behavioral advertising. Right. But I think it's um, it's interesting you mentioned about the analogy with TV. You know, when I come here as a visitor and I see some of what I would categorize as attack ads on yeah. TV, this is quite shocking to me as a Brit where, until quite recently at least, we would pride ourselves on, on having... Fairly polite politics, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's changed in the last few years. I don't know how many
2: how many members of Parliament have killed one another in duels over the last thousand years, right? Like, for a certain okay. definition, but politely, duelled each other in yes.
1: recent memory. Let's say, like twentieth, twenty first century. Okay, um, Oliver
2: Cromwell might disagree. Yeah. On okay, the...
1: so every so often, every so often, we have a bit of a, a tidy up. Yes. Right. <laughs> like, um, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm really shocked at the way that political campaigns refer to rival politicians. Right, yes. And so, the, you know, it's what you're used to, isn't it? The The U.S. political context is that people are used to seeing this stuff on TV. So I wonder if right. it's kind of, traditionally at least, it's more difficult to distinguish between what's okay online and what's okay offline.
2: Right. I mean, there's two issues here. I think there's the cultural issue where there's this weird, different, there's this, mirror image of the UK and the US. And that you're right, we have the political ads you hear from politicians can be extremely aggressive here, but our media is often more polite. Whereas right. the British media prints things oh, that yes. you would never see from a self-respecting yeah. publication. Although that is something that's changed. One thing that the internet has done is it's created more of a UK-like media environment where people who call themselves straight journalists are, you know, are, are biased in a way that would never have been considered acceptable 30 or 40 years ago in the United States. So I I do think that's changed. Um, Right, so I mean, one of the base issue here is almost all of the speech that people don't like on Facebook or Twitter is protected by the First Amendment. right? Right? And so in the United States, we will never have a law that controls any of this speech, right? There is no legal guidance to look for in the United States. There's no ability to punt this to Congress and say, come up with a law. There will never be a law that says you cannot lie about you know, this is what it means to lie about your opponent mm-hmm. in an, an attack ad. The United States, and this comes from a deep political history, right? Like, this yeah. country was founded by anonymous, anonymous pamphleteers, right? Like, we have a lot of, you know, if you look back in, like, the, uh, the 19th century, um, people said crazy things about their opponents. Mm-hmm. Just, they weren't able to say it to hundreds of thousands or millions of people, they had to say it to hundreds of people via pamphlets and leaflets and in speeches and such. Um, and so yes, I, I think that is a, a fundamental challenge in the United States is that there is no ability to have any kind of legal uh, uh, legal guidance here. And so the companies are completely on their own and making decision of what is acceptable political speech. My personal preference is I think we should be extremely small C conservative and asking half trillion to trillion dollar companies to make this decision, right. right? So the Trump ad that kicked off this whole round of conversation was an ad where he were, was saying lies about Joe Biden. That ad ran on Facebook, it ran on Twitter, it ran on YouTube. It also ran on MSNBC, NBC, CBS, and ABC. Right. The only people who said they were not gonna run it was CNN, right? CNN took it soon. CNN is owned by AT&T, the mm-hmm. telephone company. NBC is owned by NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, the cable company, right? ABC is part of Disney. Like, these are humongous corporations that have a huge number of businesses, all of which are regulated by the U.S. government, all of whom have dozens and dozens of touch points with the American executive branch. I think it is extremely dangerous to go down a road where we want these huge corporations that have all of these reasons to kiss up to whoever the ruling party is or whoever they think they're gonna to win to be making really fine-grained political decisions. I think we need to have very hard and fast rules about what they say is true or not, and those should be very, very tight and that most things should get by because I just don't want them having that kind of, I think a future in which Disney and at and and Comcast and Facebook and Google for their own proprietary interests are deciding who is able to speak online versus who isn't, I think it's a very dangerous feature.
1: That's like the extreme of curated content, isn't it, in a way, or the the most restrictive form of curated content. And um, you're talking in the same terms about broadcast media as you are about social media and online platforms. And as you'll know, part of the debate, certainly in Europe, has been... Um, to try and get the online platforms to be regulated the same as publishers? Is that the way do you th- that you think it will go?
2: Well, I, there's a lot of discussion of that that is completely irrelevant to the political discussion, right? So in the United States, at least, the, like the most overused term in this debate is CDA 230, right? Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act mm-hmm. is what allows a Facebook or Twitter to carry users' content without having the legal liability for that content. The issue here is that the underlying speech has no legal liability in the United States, right? And so if Donald Trump lies on NBC, it is the same as him lying on Facebook, right? Neither one of those companies is responsible for that political speech.
1: Right, so it doesn't matter how they're categorized.
2: Yes, right. Right. Now, there are other situations. I think when you talk about other safety situations, I think Daniel Citron, Marion Franks, these are law professors that make a strong argument that CD230 is harmful in very specific safety situations such as uh, non-consensual intimate imagery, um, such as online harassment and bullying, and so I think, it is totally appropriate to revisit the CDA two thirty model from a safety perspective, but from a political speech perspective, at least here in the United States, it's irrelevant. So I thought this was
1: really interesting. How yeah. it, down to the the point of the First Amendment? Um, what's outlawed under the Communications Decency Act, and you know what the liability is um, for tech companies? And uh, you know we drew that distinction between. Um, how this plays out in the U.S. and how this plays out in Europe and, and some of the different expectations in relation to um, permissible speech, unacceptable speech, and this is where I would be really, really interested to hear your take on this, Beck, because you know, you're an American who's domiciled in the U.K. Do you see those differences as, as starkly as we see in the law?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I was super intrigued to hear Alex's take on it, you know, for that reason. And it was funny because as he was going over that bit, I almost, um, I've been here at what, 11 years now, you know? And so I, I almost had a, a little bit of a jump because I was like, oh, what does it mean they, they'll never revoke that amendment? You know, they'll never change that. And, and I, I think I've almost become a bit more British in my thinking, you know, that we need to I think the British are really good at thinking sometimes a little bit more sensibly about evolving um rules, even though as I say that, I realize I just recently made fun of Brexit and how it seems like every time I turn around, someone's pulling out some new dusty old rule from the mid sixteen hundreds that relates to Brexit. So maybe I need to rethink what I just said. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I definitely do see some differences, and um, it, it has been fascinating to watch because the Americans are so um, staunch with their belief of free speech. But at the same time, and, and equal, I guess, in their <laughs> staunchness, is you know the the desire to to have a, a private life or privacy at least when they want it. You know they want that control, and I think as Americans we we feel like we we were taught as we grow up, you know that that we uh, that that control is rightfully ours. And so you don't ever know anything differently. You don't ever question that you don't get privacy if you want privacy, that you get free speech if you want free speech, you know. And I think for me, that was really interesting coming to live in another country and seeing a different take on that, where you don't all grow up with this sort of feeling that I've been imbued with this right. Um, So, yeah, it, it was definitely an interesting take on it for me and something that I always think about you know other folks and, and and Americans that I know that I wish could get outside of the states and experience more of the rest of the world around them because I think it would help to influence some of the ways that they then interpret you know those um, amendment rights.
1: And do you know what what's kind of made me uh, well what I've suddenly thought about really is how the tech has enabled our perceptions of this these discrepancies you know so before we didn't necessarily we weren't necessarily presented so starkly with the differences in the legislation and the differences in the values it's only when you go on global platforms where people from different countries are seeing how everybody else lives and what's permissible in their societies that you really get to see those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, you know, I've harped on this before, but the thing that just fascinates me is that this 10 years, basically, from what, 2009 to now, and we've had this massive change in the way that everybody conducts themselves through the, you know, through the internet, we have this massive meeting of, you know, all the different um, rights that we grew up with and, and thoughts that we believed as part of that process. And it's just fascinating now to me. Um, it's why I always tell people as well, you know, welcome to the experiment, because you look around and, and every single person that you see that's connected and, and, you know, looking at the world through this new newly digitized lens is is part of this giant experiment, you know, welcome to being a guinea pig. Uh, I think we We're going to have to wait and see, you know, where does it take us and where do we fall out? Um, I think the thing that's a bit scary right now, and in particular for, you know, people of, of our generation and where we're all sitting with the whole thing, is where we see some of the challenges, you know, that are popping up around free speech and around privacy and where it's leading to worries around wars between countries, you know, over these things, where we see the disinformation campaigns, you know, that Alex was talking about, and we see the influences, you know, of the the U.S. elections, for example, and then even where we had um, the – when Macron was elected, you know, there was a lot of concern over the way that uh, his campaign uh, had been influenced or not influenced. Um, the same thing with uh, Angela Merkel. I know her last campaign, you know, they were talking about influencers against that as well. And it's just fascinating mm-hmm. that we, here we are dealing with that in just such a short period of time, and the tech is, is what's made it all possible.
1: Yeah, and what's, what's really interesting, when you've mentioned um, Macron um I was working in Facebook at the time and of course what we saw was that there were a bunch of elections happening and all of the different countries had different rules about what was allowed. Mm. So in France they have a blackout for campaigning.
0: Oh that's right. Yes, yes, yes. So, um,
1: I can an apologies to um French friends because I can't remember exactly something like I, I I want to say 48 hours but I might be completely wrong on that. But there is a certain amount of time in the run up to people actually to voting day um where you are not where the parties are not allowed to campaign so it's like that there has to be a blackout on political campaigning yeah. on social media as well so how do you you know they you know all of the social media platforms had to get their heads around how they would operationalize that for french citizens right. But not in other countries, and so it, does that apply just to French IPs, or does it apply to any material that refers to the political situation in France? That surely can't refer. That surely can't apply to the BBC reporting on it. You know, so again,
0: what's the line between what's political? But then, and what's bad, yeah, you know. But then the challenge, right? again, back to the tech. The challenge is there's so many ways around that. So even if they put in the block you know, any numpty with a VPN is going to be able to look like they're coming from somewhere else in the world. And as a matter of fact, as we well know, people that, you know, have, um, uh, free speech in you know, they, they do in that so that they can get access, um, to, to information. Um, thinking about our, our, you know, friends in China and people in countries that are oppressed in that way. Um, But yeah, so how how is that even possible? Like how have we in such a short period of time, how have we gotten to this place where we're stuck with these quandaries and questions? We don't have a global sort of platform for being able to resolve them and we're trying to take what feels like, you know, a pair of tweezers and and pick apart a problem, yeah, that's the size of the world. And it just it just doesn't so feel doable. global,
1: international consensus on some of these problems. You know, that's my favourite topic. I know, Which see I'm... how I set you up. That's how, we are such we're good not, friends now. Even, we're not even going to go. We're not even going to talk about encryption, are we? No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> um, and I've got an overriding image of a numpty with a VPN now, <laughs> Beck. <laughs>
0: VPNs are also good. I just want to make that clear.
1: They <laughs> absolutely are, um, but I'm going to pick up on that word "numpty" because it's not only is it a fantastic English idiom that I'm very pleased to see you've adopted, um, but it, I was absolutely bowled over by um, the quality of the students at Stanford. It was massively refreshing, and I'll tell you exactly why it was massively refreshing. Um, I did kind of office hours with any students who wanted to pop in and have a chat and find out about my career and stuff. It was basically me just talking about me. So (laughs) apologies. (laughs) I met some incredible young women doing computer science at Stanford. And one of them told me, um, hi, Maya. Uh, Maya told me she reckons they've got about 30% Female representation in computer science. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. Stick with it, ladies. Stick with it. This is. I mean, I was. I've got a goosebumps saying it now. I mean, of course, thirty percent is not fifty percent, but that is so much better. Well, so much better than my impression of other universities. Actually, I'd, I wouldn't mind seeing some data on that. That would be super cool. Let's yeah. let's do that. Let's hunt that out for a subsequent episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I would um, be interested to know that as well the
1: the the thoughtfulness of the students, their insight, the questions that I got in the lectures that I did were just amazing um, and massively um, confidence boosting. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like the future's in really really safe hands. If these people are going to be going into um, information security or trust and safety, yeah. and on that note, um, it's probably probably a good point for me to roll the VT where um, Alex and I discuss what we're doing on the Trust and Safety Engineering course. Yeah, let's hear it. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the aims of the Trust and Safety Engineering course?
2: Yeah, I I too uh, have been very impressed by the students and it has really reinforced that we made the right decision to teach this class. It was a little avant-garde to you know, in the current kind of speech environment on American universities, it was a little risky to say, we're going to talk about child sexual exploitation. We're going to show examples of hate speech. We're going to, you know, talk about, show pictures of Nazis, right? Um, But the students have reacted very, very well. Yeah, so the the whole goal of this class, Trust and Safety Engineering, is to teach computer science students about the potential uses of the products they build to cause harm. Uh, One of the things that I, one of the issues I think we're dealing with is that on trust, safety, and privacy issues, it feels like as an industry, we're in the same place that we were on core information security in the late 90s, which in the late 90s, nobody knew how to write secure software, right? And I right. was you know, an undergrad and then became a professional uh, software uh, security tester. I became a pen tester. I ran a company where our entire job was find people's bugs and help them fix it. So I got to see a lot of this progression in the early 2000s. But at the time, everybody blamed Microsoft because of Nimda and Code Red and SQL Slammer and all of this malware that caused huge economic damage. And Microsoft was to blame, but the truth is that actually everybody had the problem. Nobody built secure software. Yeah. They just happened to be the biggest company uh, that was building consumer software. And we're in the same place on these trust and safety issues. Whereas there's no real clear leaders in this. Um, you know, The Googles, Microsofts, and Facebooks have done a bunch of work on trust and safety. I would still, it's still, an early days even inside those mm-hmm. companies and there's this massive drop off between the top four or five companies and everybody else the next 10,000 companies there's are doing almost nothing and that's what we've got to do is we've got to start to build um, the same kind of community that we built in the late 90s and early 2000s around building secure software we have to do that about building safe and trustworthy and privacy preserving software and I think uh, that's one of the things we're just trying to contribute here is just a big ba- basic class on this, um, that at most good universities, you can learn about SQL injection, cross-site scripting, buffer overflows, use after free bugs, um, but you can't learn anything about bullying, and harassment, uh, about death threats, about people who are pushed to suicide online. And so those things are just as important, if not more important, honestly, than SQL injection and buffer overflows. And so that's why we wanna teach and have a new generation of students who can do that. So our goal here is, you know, right now we're doing an experimental class. We have 10 students. We're taking their feedback, detailed feedback on, on every session. And we're learning and, and building around the curriculum. And then next January, February, March, we will teach it uh, to an open set of students. We currently have 70 enrolled. Hopefully we'll get that even bigger. And it's great to teach a hundred Stanford students a year. That's not going to solve the problem. And so our goal is coming out of the next session that we will be recording all that content and then putting it together in a package that can be consumed by people in industry, or can be used to teach an equivalent class anywhere around the world. Um, we're very lucky here at Stanford and for me personally to know people like you, to know people, um, like Daniel Citron, to know, uh, the, the team at Microsoft, the team at Google, the team at Facebook, uh, all these folks who have come and lectured, Brian Fishman and Tickney Davis uh, might be dropping by. You know, the, These are kinds of connections that most professors can't make. Uh, and so I feel like we have an obligation to capture all of this content and then provide it so that anybody around the world uh, can use our content as a basis and then build on top of it.
1: And it seems to me that you know going global with this in particular fills a really, really important policy gap mm. in that you know you and I have both been on the receiving end of um, governments saying things like, "Oh you don't you don't care about this at all. you're not doing anything about this," which you know very rarely reflects the reality. you know maybe not everybody's doing enough and yeah. like you say there are huge gaps in those companies that don't have the man or you know the human resources don't have the financial resources the kind of the 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 startups and the tier above that um, but when we're looking at how we can bring together governments and big tech from opposite poles of, of the discussion on online safety and trust and safety issues. This seems to be a, a, a really, really important step forward because yeah. if nothing else, in 5-10 years time, industry can potentially turn around and say, no, we do have people in-house who understand these issues. When we build products, you know, we, we might not be able to make them 100% safe and 100% secure because it's debatable whether that's possible. Right. Um, but we have people who have been trained in this stuff who understand how to build products with these kinds of safety concerns in mind.
2: Right, yeah, nobody, no politicians are making the argument right now that none of these companies work on security. They might say you didn't do a good job in this case, but they know that there's massive teams. This is a problem, honestly, the industry's created for itself by not proactively talking about these issues, right, like in Silicon Valley, our products are perfect and we make the world more open and connected and special and happy. And you know, we just, from a marketing perspective, we only talk about the positive uses of our products.
1: There are all sorts of reasons why companies don't say, hey, let's talk about child abuse. Right,
2: you know? right, let's let's <laughs> let's sit down and talk about Nazis, right? That, that doesn't happen. But it, it turns out that was a mistake, right? The fact that these companies have thousands of people working on safety issues and that most of the media and politicians think they have zero or 10 is, is a problem that the companies have created for themselves. Yeah. And so I don't see that as my problem to fix, although you know that is something that companies have to change. But at least if we start to talk about these issues um, and we start to have a kind of a basic set of understanding that can be relied upon, then when policy decisions are made, hopefully they're based upon reality, not the fantasy of how tech companies operate.
0: Okay. so. I love the end of that um, bit there. So where Alex is talking about the the trust and safety uh, online and, and he does that sort of comparison bit, you know, where he's talking about the InfoSec industry and relating it, basically, you know, saying that we're kind of now with trust and safety where we were with InfoSec in the late 90s. Now, again, as someone who was in InfoSec in the late 90s, um, I, I could completely relate to what he was talking about. Um, it it's encouraging and it's also shocking at the same time. And I'll explain that. So uh, my immediate thought was encouraging, right? Because in the late nineties with InfoSec, it was exciting. It was new. It was challenging. It was, you know, we're going to start on this and we can make a real difference. You know, okay, maybe that was just how I felt with all of it. But that's, that was very much how I felt in the late nineties. And then I said, you know, a little bit shocking as well, because, here I am now, 2019, so literally a full 23, almost 24 years into my security career. And I feel like there's still so many things that need to change that haven't changed. Like we've not moved the dial at all on some of these things. And so that's where I felt a little bit sort of, <clears throat> yeah, shocked a bit too, because trust and safety are are just paramount, you know, they're paramount um, to, to our continued success and our evolution of success, you know, with um, being able to 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 use online in the way that we want to use it, <laughs> to to create a silly phrase. Um, but the the thing as well that it made me think about was, and, and my wife and I were just talking about this the other night, talking about our kids, and talking about you know the impacts for them as they grow up now on you know online, and talking about trust and safety uh, with them, obviously being online. And yeah, so that's kind of where the shocking bit comes from, because if there's experts like yourself and Alex, you know, and and you're making a comparison point like that, it yeah, it just makes me a little bit sad because then that means that it's going to be down to my kids to live through some of those pain points and to live through some of that, you know, as we evolve over the next 10 to 20 years with them.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, that's that's true, actually. So if we're assuming um, uh, uh, the same kind of maturity timeline, if you like, then it could be another twenty years before we really get our heads around this. And you know that uh, you know what one of the things I like to do is look into the future and work out you know what's coming down the line. When we've been talking about quantum and when we've been talking about generalized AI and things like that you know, there are going to be new challenges that come along in the next 20 years as well, right? So, so you know, the, the, um, the trust and safety people that are going to come along, you know, after our generation, yes, they're going to have to fix the problems of today. They're going to have to come up with those solutions, but they're also going to have to meet the new challenges. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we are with InfoSec now, isn't it? Which is, we've got quite good at the things that we know about and the things that we've got comfortable with dealing with but then something comes along like ransomware or you know like a particular kind of um attack on critical infrastructure and we suddenly go oh my god there's some new stuff we've got to learn this wasn't <laughs> Yeah. This wasn't in the exam I did 15 years
0: ago. Well, uh, <laughs> or to that point, what it does is it highlights the gaps in the bits that we've built that we felt were fairly stable and sturdy, you know. Well. And I think, again, what that just goes to show is that we are still just in a giant experiment with all of this. You know, we're putting together the pieces and we we think something feels hey look, I'm standing on the platform, boss. It looks pretty steady from up here. Yeah, let me mm-hmm. add this ton of bricks on the other end of it. You know, oh, suddenly not so sturdy after all. That's kind of what it feels like sometimes when we see, you know, the the latest and greatest want to cry come out, for example. And suddenly it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, RDP, that's important, too, you know, to protect yeah. impact against. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it just, it feels like it's, um, do it, you know those little, have you seen these balls that have like the line that go around them and you can sort of ro- um, rotate it, spin it on your desk and it's just mesmerizing. You just watch the line go around and around and it never really goes anywhere. It's like a, a weird sort of anti-gravity dance or something. Is that, is that what CISOs do, Beck? That's what I feel like I'm doing right now. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> You're just mesmerized watching it going. It's so pretty. It feels so solid. Oh crap! It rolled off the table. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: So this is the kind of like, we used to have these back. Don't you remember? They were called spinning tops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we had these in the 70s and 80s that was had. So now we've got shinier ones that protect that they are pretending that they're new
0: oh my gosh yeah but I am I you know I always tell people my my big joke anybody that that knows me is going to groan as soon as I say this it's all job security for us right so just, oh, yeah. this is oh yeah the only good thing yeah. about it <laughs> As someone
1: who I never thought I would quote once said, and I'm not going to tell you his name for all sorts of
0: reasons, there's enough crime to go around for everybody. Oh, God, yeah, exactly. When when the old crime becomes new again, hey, speaking of that, so a little bit off topic, but I have to tell you, so I had, um, actually I did tell you, I had that chap contact me, right, about the Airbnb scams, and he uh, wanted an angle on that. And, you know, I ended up hooking him up with um, Brett Johnson. Hey, Brett. You probably don't listen to this, but hey, anyway, uh, Brett's an awesome guy. One of the original uh, internet godfathers. Uh, He, uh, what's his handle? At Golem. But he doesn't belong to the mafia, does he? No, no, no. He was uh, one of the original fraudsters. Um, So he, yeah, he was on the FBI's Most Wanted for a while. He's now a reformed, you know, sort of bad guy gone good. Uh, But anyway, knows this stuff inside out. And so I ended up uh, hooking him up with the chap that was looking for the the commentary around Airbnb and everything that they're suffering with the fraud, um, you know, in, in their industry right now and against their um, users. But what made me think of that is that it's a perfect example of stuff just going full circle, you know, in, in the criminal underground and, and just with crime in oh, general, oh, yeah. you know, old crime just becomes new and digitized. That's all it is. And we're going to continue to see that. And,
1: and, and equally, as you and I kind of said, outside of the co- confines of, you know, this podcast, it makes it makes you realize it's kind of like their Cambridge Analytica moment, isn't it? It makes you realize what Airbnb weren't wow. doing wow.
0: until yeah. then. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. I don't know about
1: you, but I'd kind of assumed they were verifying Properties. But the
0: thing is, you and I would probably assume that, right? The majority of their user base, that is never probably gonna cross their mind. Unless you, you know, are a police officer, unless you, you know, work in fraud, you work in cybercrime of some sort, you know, that's probably never gonna cross your mind. But then, yeah, it was fascinating right. because I, as I was reading through some of the articles and things, you know, just looking at it for myself, the, um, the, the guy, ugh, let me see, I can't remember his name at all, but one of their co-founders had said, oh, this has really forced us to reevaluate our, our overall design, you know, uh, for the first time in depth in the last 10 years. And I was like, mate, are you kidding me? <laughs> 10 years mm-hmm. and you're publicly admitting this. There's a huge, huge problem here with the with any business that is fully digitized and, and relies on digital uh, integration the way that Airbnb does that thinks it's all right to sit for ten years without updating their design around privacy and um, and, and security.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out, isn't it? Because you know we have these shocks in certain companies and certain industries and. You know, we always say all oh, this is going to have a negative effect on users. It's going to have a negative impact on share prices and that kind of thing. And and I think it'll be interesting to see how this trajectory works out. You know, our. our user numbers gonna fall off. Are they gonna lose revenue? Let's
0: see. Well, I don't know. Again, one of the articles I read, there were a number of people that had been interviewed and who had actually had, you know, fraud happen, had been misdirected in terms of where they were staying, stuff like that. And they were coming back and saying, No, we'll still use it because it's the best way to find somewhere cheap to stay. And I'm like, that's it. Right. That's it. That's how they're gonna keep getting the business.
1: This takes me back to the very very end of my trip to California actually because I got an Uber from Stanford to SFO and San Francisco Airport I, for
0: those of us that aren't cool. Sorry, yeah,
1: San Francisco Airport. And um uh, the car and the guy that turned up were not the car and the guy that I had No. On really? my phone. Anymore. What happened? Well, and and the car the guy that turned up Didn't speak any English at all, except, hello, I'm here.
0: Please tell me you didn't take that car.
1: And I said to him, can you show me in the app where I'm going? Tell me where I'm going. And then, you know, because I wanted, I thought, if his details confirm my details, then clearly that's all right and there's just been a bug in the app, right? But he couldn't. He didn't understand what I was saying. Oh, my gosh. So I just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm not Coming with you, and he couldn't understand, and he kept trying to like. He got out of the car and started trying to follow me. Oh. Like, wait, where are you going? And I said, No, 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 I am not coming with you because you are not the person I was expecting. Yeah, and good for you. So I, I cancelled and I
0: got another trip, but of course I got charged the cancellation fee. <laughs> oh, so you better go and you better go and, and tell them to cancel that please tell me to yeah yeah
1: yeah I've, a, I've I've
0: put in a claim for it but i thought how what's what and i was really fascinated you know
1: when i got in the other my eventual uber i thought what has happened there that is really fascinating is it is it a glitch that's kind of mismatched us or whatever um but i thought no if you can't verify that you know where you're taking me i'm gonna miss my flight anyway <laughs>
0: and that was that was the end
1: of my trip and I suppose at that point that seems like quite a good time to sign off doesn't
0: it well I guess so if you've left California we're done we're done thanks Alex really appreciate your time I appreciate your insight yeah, exactly. yeah thank you for being our roving reporter on the ground in the great state of California
1: <laughs> I enjoyed that and I, I am very much looking forward to you sending me my Kermit the Frog Muppet News Flash hat and and journo's coat i think that would be great
0: (laughs) well you know we're not going to stop this podcast until we actually get on the air properly the two of us so um yeah the rest of you guys um another episode will be coming uh, soon bye now (laughs) see ya